0: Richard Ziotti. Paul Ford. Well, we're back here again at the studio in our office at Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City. We are rolling. And uh, we're busy, we're working, we're doing stuff, and we're here recording another episode of Track Changes, our official podcast. Yes, baby. Trackchanges.postlight.com. Now listen, we've got a two-part show. Mm Mm-hmm. Two. Yep. Usually we just do one, but we're, we're breaking it up. We're going to try to change it up a little bit going into 2017. It's going to be a pretty exciting, challenging year. So one of the things we're going to do is, is change the podcast up a little bit, adapt mm-hmm. to the times. Sure. Get with it. So let me ask you a question. It's, it's a Christmas in about five days. Okay. What'd you get your kids? Very little. They have too much stuff. Yeah, mine
1: too. Uh, and I would love... For them to have less stuff, I can't control what family, like relatives, are going to bring. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't tell them no gifts for Christmas. I know
0: your brother got your four-year-old son an electric guitar for Which his is birthday. Bananas, right? He's How did your four wife not kill him? Old. She just—it's just been hidden. Yeah, he's the Size of my kid—he's too big for him. And he it's never loud. needs to know he owns an electric. guitar. I mean, in years from now, he'll he, come back can... and listen to this podcast.
1: But yeah, stuff like that. So something really. Gestural, more you know, real small. No piles of toys and stuff. They just have too much stuff. A Couple so. books, a few things. A Couple of books, a couple of little things, and stuff to open under day. the tree. Yeah. yeah, and the Santa thing is the real deal right now. Like they're they're bo- they're all bought into it. So there's going to be a cookie, and there'll be milk. We do um, carrots for the
0: reindeer to eat. Interesting. There's a lot of stress, and in, in, because uh, we live in an apartment building, so they wonder how Santa gets there. Into the building, yeah, because he's landing on the roof, and they've been up there for July Fourth to see the fireworks. So, oh, like, does he take the elevator or the stairs? Like, are right. the stairs? So, we do a thing where we make sure that the door to the roof is unlocked, which yep. it has to be, kind of by law anyway. Okay, and so we go up there. Uh, usually, my wife will take them up. I have five-year-old twins, and and they'll they'll check that the Santa can safely land on the roof, get down to the fourth floor, <laughs> uh, feed his reindeer a carrot. There they're, you go. They're not processing that the reindeer would have to come down, right? And you could talk that you could talk around this. So, so get I, there. I thought about this and I decided not to do it. I almost bought my kids. You know what a Raspberry Pi is, right? I do. Okay, so it's a little computer. Yeah, it's Very a little, little very cheap, and you can for like like one hundred and fifty or two hundred bucks, kind of get a fully kitted out. Comes with a screen, a keyboard, a little Mm -hmm. mouse, you know, everything you need to be a Raspberry Pi Explorer and educational software built in and all sorts of stuff because they want to, they like to type, they love speech synthesis and so on, but they haven't had a lot of screen time. Yeah. And, I've been thinking about it, but I just am not ready for them to go full on on the computer. Like my son needs to run. My daughter needs to be good at handwriting for their like they both need to know how to write and read and they're getting there. physical activity. And especially for my boy, like he has to keep moving. Yeah. And the screen can stop you from moving. I know that. So it's been tricky because I want to give them access to that world. But I think five is probably too young. Yeah. What do you think? Um, they
1: can have pockets of time where there are like, there's a session that's like, hey, you get 45 minutes to play with something where they're sitting down at a table and focusing for a minute and they don't have to run around.
0: See, the problem is they're exhausting though, right? So you'll be there and they'll be like, daddy, can I have another half hour? And you're sitting on the sofa, check, checking your phone. Yeah. And then I'll be like, yeah, you know, they're learning. That's that's fine. Go ahead, guys. Yeah. You don't want them to veg out
1: on the thing. You want them to still run around. I mean... There's so many toys now that are, like, trying to teach kids to program when they're four years old. It's it's a little infuriating, actually. I I don't know if it's good or bad. I can't tell. There's a lot of, like, board games that supposedly teach you how to program. I mean, the
0: reality is I don't think there's any particular science here, right? Like, it's not like – like, there's science that you could learn a foreign language uh, as a very small kid and that will stick with you longer. Right. There's evidence along those lines, but there's no evidence that a four-year-old will make a better programmer later if they learn to program right now.
1: I, I don't think there is that evidence. There and are I, kids
0: who start really early. And, and it's, it's become, you know,
1: my, my little boy's going to be going into kindergarten, and they mentioned that they start to teach them a, like basic concepts of programming from kindergarten. They have yeah, like no, they little, do. They do. Which is fascinating to me. I'm curious to see what that even is.
0: Or did what you that learn really anything means? about programming and computers when you were in school? Elementary? Yeah. Okay. No. I was I d- too young. I did in fourth grade. It was a, a teacher made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. and We had to give them instructions. What does that mean? So it'd be like, you guys in the class tell me how to make this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he had peanut butter and he had jelly and he had bread. And we were like, you know, put the bread down. And How's he, that, computers? And he'd put it down on the ground. Okay. And then we'd say, put the bread on the table. Okay. And he'd put it on the table, but he'd lean it the wrong way. And so it was basically about edge cases and how you can introduce bugs into a system unintentionally. That's what you were being taught. That, and we had a we. I think we played one interactive fiction game.
1: Okay. Oh, I had I had like choose your own adventure books. Yeah, we had some which of is those. sort of like. You know, go left and you go to this page and go right and you go to this page. They were awful. They were terrible. See, I, mean, I have
0: a profound memory of the peanut butter and jelly. Like, I want to do that here at work. But that's not
1: computers. How is that computers? It
0: teaches you about like how specific you have to be in order to program a computer. I see. It was something a teacher could do without like a logo robot or a computer. They could just be like, hey, here's what computers are. They Interesting. W- they work like this.
1: Yeah, I was not getting
0: that kind of education. You didn't just, have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. For I didn't have any sort of like thinking
1: around programming or anything like that in elementary school. I, I got to high school and there were like a bunch of Apple 2e's and we used to hack them right in the class because the teacher didn't understand what she was doing. She was trained up to give a very particular curriculum, and we would do the work in like a minute. Yeah, for the whole hour. And then the rest of the time we'd be screwing around.
0: I had that in high school. My friend Matt hacked into all the labs and would yeah. change the names of the hard drives to be offensive things about the teachers. Right. So I don't know what
1: what is computer lab today for a 7-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. I have uh, no what, idea. What do you want them to learn? <sighs> That's a good question. I I don't know. I, I You know, I... I don't know if I want them to think about programming when they're seven years old. I don't know.
0: I'm I not sure. I don't know if I do either. I, I don't what know. What I yet. want is for them to have power over their environment. Like I I want them to look at the Toy Story movie and know that that was made by people using a computer to yeah. make all those shapes. Yeah. I want them to understand that Amazon is like a place and you can, when you order something from Amazon, I w- I wouldn't mind explaining to them like by the time they're 10. I w- I would love them to be able to, Explain how an order happens on Amazon. Right, like just the basics of the material world around them that get affected by the digital stuff. Yeah, but I think there's a real fantasy that somehow programming is is a magical clue to power.
1: And I think there's an assumption, look, like this you better get your kid ready because most jobs are going to require some level of yeah,
0: teach them Mandarin and yeah, JavaScript. There's that. Those right? are the two. There's
1: a lot of that right today, and it's incredibly competitive. And we're dealing with schools right now, and it's just. It's awful. Uh, I mean, it's not awful. It's just the idea of getting your kid ready for a job or positioning them for a job at six years old is kind of comical to me. I'd rather let them just sort of figure out and play a little bit and see what the world is about. You know, that's my thinking, but what do I know?
0: People do it. I mean, this means that your son will end up a poet or a make experiment. no money ever. Yeah, I mean, there, there's it's a fine. likelihood of that. No, but I, I, I'm in the same boat. I just like I kind of want them to do it just because it would give us something to talk about if they were into it. Yeah. That'd be fun. like, to have some, eight, you know, in a couple years, they have these eight-year-old, like, Python programmers. Yeah. That'd be cool. But I think in reality, I'm going to just see what the aptitude is. And if it's there, I'll get them a little machine, but I'm not going to push it on them. They're five. Yeah, exactly. Also, they'll just fight over it nonstop. I'd have to buy two computers. So there's a part of me that just doesn't want to deal with all that nonsense. Right, Right. So, look, here's the thing. That's us trying to help our kids. Yeah. We have a friend who tries to help lots of children. He's thousands. currently helping thousands of children. Yep. Uh, his name is Colin Smith,
1: and that's as waspy as you're going to get when it comes <laughs> to names.
0: I'm trying to think what, I mean. John. Yeah, but it's, it's it, Brad. And he is the
1: president of a nonprofit that is based here in New York City called Change for Kids and that's changeforkids.org. That's right. Uh, welcome, Colin. Thank you for doing this. No, thank you guys for having me.
0: Well, this entire recording session is tax-deductible now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's pretty exciting.
1: I want to talk a lot about Change for Kids because Change for Kids is a really, really cool organization, but I do want to talk about Colin Smith. Well, let's tell people what Change for Kids I'm does. I'm going to let Colin do that. and I'm yeah. gonna, Colin, you've got a nice 60-second summary
2: window. You to jump it. through. Go. So what we believe is that if kids go to a great elementary school, then they're going to be able to be successful in life. That sets them on the right path. That means that they end up much more likely to end up in college, uh, get into a great career. That path starts early. And the schools that we work with are all very high need public elementary schools. What we're doing with those schools and what we see in them is that often a lot of really basic things that we had when we were growing up are missing, so they often won't have art classes or music, fitness, tutoring, extra tutoring for kids. What Change for Kids does is first, partner with a very strong principal, and second, once we have identified that principal's work with them and their team to identify the resources that are gonna make the biggest possible difference for their school. So uh, we have an on-the-ground point person working there every single day Uh, to identify okay this school needs a great art program for the third grade and they're missing gym in the second grade Um, we can bring in a great fitness partner for that their computer lab is uh, using floppy disk drives and bubble macs from 10 years ago we can bring in some extra computers it's very targeted investments with very strong leaders and you can imagine that that makes a big difference for those schools and how, cool. how many schools is this? It's at ten right now. They're all public elementary schools, and that's about four thousand students every year.
0: And is it only New York City? Is it all New York City based York City. exactly?
2: Okay. Yep. How
1: many more? How many more schools do you think could benefit
2: from this thing? Okay. Yeah, there. It's a great question. Four hundred sixty-two is the exact answer, um, not to be precise. But we've identified four hundred seventy-two concentrated poverty elementary schools. Just four hundred
1: seventy-two out
2: of six hundred and four.
0: Um, Oh my goodness. So you're about 2% of the way there. (laughs) Oh my good. But wait a
1: minute. That's 75%, 80%. 78%, exactly. 78% of of New York City public schools have these needs. Exactly. The
2: majority of their students are below the poverty level. 78%
1: of students in New York City public schools. Are below the poverty 78% level. Seventy-eight
2: percent of the schools in New York City have a majority of their students below the poverty level. Yeah, that's an incredible it's statistic. That's most an incredible. And those are eighty percent plus. I mean, statistic. there's very, very few students in those schools that Amazing. are not in those circumstances. Yeah. So our connection,
1: you're, people are wondering, Track Changes is yeah. sort of this product, digital product, technology podcast, and our connection to Colin. I've known Colin for a while, and we've actually, as Postlight, have done some work, and we'll probably do more work in the future for change for kids and that's why that's our sort of dotted line to change for kids and colin smith what's fascinating about colin smith is that he had all the ingredients of becoming a (laughs) cocaine-fueled banker he's tall yeah
0: this is a tall he's white handsome He's handsome, (laughs) he's got
1: that handshake it's just such a I just feel like I joined a club every time I shake hands Damn with him. I'm glad to meet you.
0: <laughs> exactly. So He's got laryngitis today, which makes it a little better. It <laughs> <laughs> it does. And but no, so, in, in the context, like if you walked in, I would assume you were here for a meeting to tell me about you wanted to build a new financial product, you were working in internet advertising. Yeah. Like I wouldn't expect you to come in here and be like, hey, there. what's the number again 78 percent 78 yeah. percent of of schools are you know consumed by poverty right now we yeah. need to do something so it is interesting like th- this is yeah. an unusual i'd love profile. to hear
1: that path yeah and, and you know where where you've been what you were doing professionally before this and how you ended up here uh,
2: thanks for the i think kind words there um, they were they were kind <laughs> read them as kind Colin. um so in 2009, uh, and Rich knows this well because he was one of the first people to, to jump aboard. Um, I had been working in investment banking for uh, eight years out of school, uh, Bank of America, and then a small firm in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I just joined the board of Change for Kids. Um, I was a 27-year-old kid, and um, you know, a bunch of Goldman guys asked me to join a board. I said yes. I was very excited. And I then, said these
0: we old Goldman Sachs guys. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Smith, They're great Yes, yeah. Exactly. Yes, Ted. Yeah, um, Ted. Ted. <laughs> Ted's Ted, a great guy. Ted's yes. like c- Colin. You're young. We need a little some. We need a little fresh blood in here. Exactly. What's a good Goldman Sachs
1: managing partner name? Uh, isn't there Grange? Isn't that a name? Totally.
0: Uh, or actually, the name of a college like Kenyon. Yeah, Grotten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So,
2: so, as <laughs> so as soon, so as soon as I joined, uh, they all packed up. Um, they had been there for 14 years, and they wanted to move on with their lives. They'd moved to London and other different places. And uh, myself and a few other board members wanted to make it, uh, help it keep going. Um, and then the recession hit. Uh, so this is we had 08 late 08, early 09 crash. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you had $75,000 of revenue, about $300,000 of expenses. You had three months of cash left, and it was going to go bankrupt. And, Wait,
0: and all the people helping you were bankers.
2: <laughs> well, the bankers at that point had left. Oh, and so. Right. So the, we were in a pretty tough spot at that they'd point. They'd left the
0: economy, too. I mean, <laughs> <it's, okay.
2: laughs> exactly. New York's economy wasn't exactly firing on cylinders. So all this thing was,
1: m- in most sen- cases, should have just been shut. I like guess, like, let's just shut this down gracefully and yeah. say goodbye.
2: Well, I, I was sort of torn by two things. Number one, that I felt a personal responsibility on it. Um, and then number two, my parents had just adopted three foster kids. And so I saw the difference that opportunity made for them. I felt like I could... Um, try to do what I could to get it back up on its feet and that's where we started I was in a you know me and one other guy Mike Quinzio who Rich knows well um, we were in a brick office looking out on dead brick walls and and that's where we restarted. We had a $15 event with drink specials and dollar Firefly Vodka's. That was our first event. Um, and that's where it started. And that it,
0: sounds like something like a 28-year-old would exactly. do. Like, I was 28, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. How am I going to get people to enjoy this? I, <laughs> yeah. know, I know how to raise money. Yeah. That's right.
2: okay. So <laughs> we restarted there, and now we've grown from $75K a year to about a $2 million annual budget. We that's have, amazing. You know, what did your I-Bank, iBanker...
0: And, and peers make of you when you made this transition you're
2: probably disgusted <laughs> what yeah i think it's what would your friends say right they're like oh that's so nice that's so great of you yada yada and then yeah. I'm sure they turned around and thought I was completely freaking nuts
0: did like you sense <laughs> the, the number of dinner invitations going down like it was <laughs>
2: oh it was interesting you had that first one of just like yeah how can I help I'm so pumped to help you and you didn't get a lot of second dinner invitations yeah. after that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. enough no. to oh, be no. fair it, we were so lucky I mean you had some great folks right out of the gates but that's that was Rich right and Rich was one of those guys and how did you, know, you you guys me have no idea to, how did you make that decision to step in because it was it was, rough. Uh, it was a client of my old
1: agency Chris Forbes was his name he had a company that uh was a client of ours that had since been acquired uh, he said look, you got to check out this this great organization I think you know I think you should just peek in and see what they need and it was part money part technology it's like you know they need help they need to get on you know their presence online is terrible and they need to you know, a facelift and all that. So this guy really, I mean, you have to give him a ton of credit. I mean, oh, he went he was on his campaign. He was amazing. So then I connected him with a very good friend of mine named Terry McLean. So it was sort of this web took hold of just the network of people who just, they bought into the, the spirit of the thing. And uh, Terry's continues to be involved yes. to this day. He,
0: and you know, this is a tiny digression, but this is actually one of the roles of Agencies in New York City. Like if you go talk to Pentagram or places like that, yeah because they serve as natural networks, they end up in do-gooder roles a lot. Yeah. Pentagram they, designed our logo. To perfect, right? There exactly. you go. Yep. Like, yeah. and that's, that's right. Because so many people come through, yeah. they're often able to do some good. And there's such a social uh dynamic to
1: agency, right? If you when if you got an agency and you want to be successful. You're socializing, you're, and you're you're really taking care of that network that's in front of you, and so it was such a natural move to take one of my clients who cared about a thing and connect him to another one of my clients yeah. who was actually also a good friend of mine and say, "Hey, this makes a lot of sense. I'm not a finance person. Somebody's got to manage these books and help yeah. help you know do modeling and budgets and all that. And He's a great at it, and that's yep. Terry. So yep. he came in and volunteered his time and. And it snowballs from there because without a doubt, Terry, who has harassed others to step forward and say, look, I'm not a creative. This thing yeah. needs creatives. So s- part of it was money, but part of it was just you were sort of cobbling together a team of leadership that was going to help this thing get on its feet. And, you know, you know, Pentagram made the logo, but Pentagram didn't. That was its contribution. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and Which is worth Probably significant, hun- yeah, a yeah. lot of money, hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars.
0: It's a big deal to get a Pentagram logo. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: And, and I think what Colin did so well was understand from a management perspective how these pieces needed to come together mm-hmm. beyond just like, hey, please make a donation. He saw that, okay, you know what? This person will provide some time, some energy, et cetera.
2: Now that's great to hear that that's your takeaway. I mean, I think those ethos have really continued for the organization right to um Postlight's involvement where Postlight has very kindly uh given some financial support they have come out to schools, they volunteered in our schools, and you've volunteered in a capacity-building way by helping us build out our volunteering efforts, and that's just a few months into the relationship. So yeah. it's very, to your point, Rich, and we've had great conversations, as you guys know, about sort of potential things down the, down the, coming down the pike. I think what we've always tried to do is say that there are a tremendous amount of resources here in New York City volunteering collection drives and funds, of course, and yet you have these incredibly high-need elementary schools that are right down the block from where we are right now. So if Change for Kids can serve as a way to connect those two things in an incredibly efficient and effective way, um, then the opportunity there is dramatic, as you can expect.
1: Th- that's that's what's amazing about New York City, right? I mean, yeah. you could be at a $200 prefix restaurant and be 500 feet away yeah. from just a destroyed elementary school just you could tell it's just poverty right there nearby and that's the, that is new york and i think that's one of yeah. your goals which is like how do i get these two pieces to connect here because it's, we tend to just completely insulate ourselves and just live our, in our own bubbles right
0: how many of your donors send their kids to public school
1: Ooh, he's not going to answer that question, Paul.
2: <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> question to ask that. this guy. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can. Yeah. Okay. Don't go there. Yeah, I'm it's a little squirmy. Yeah, sorry, it's, sorry. I mean, but it's not 50%. It's, it's, not, not, it's, it's lower than 50%. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is
0: tricky, right? It I is. mean, this is, it is. that's a characteristic of this place yes. is that the vast majority of schools are underserved. And even the people who want to help are pressured, uh, feel pressured to not send their kids to those schools. Well, yeah.
2: you know, we talked about, to your point there, Paul, there are a good chunk that probably do send their kids to public schools. But you have a very different world here. I talked about 604 total schools, uh, total district public elementary schools in New York City, 478 that are uh, – 472, excuse me, that are, are high need – well, in the ones that are not high need, so in the top 100 most affluent public elementary schools in New York City, the average PTA at those schools gives 152,000 dollars a year of supplemental funding that can go to they whatever their their own, they raise their own funds.: Exactly, whatever that like, principal wants. Yep. And our schools, the bottom 472 that community, the average PTA raises $1,400. So just think of that apples-to-apples discrepancy, right? $152, 1400, And dollars yeah. So they're getting 1% of the sort of incidental resources. Exactly. For and they need it the most. Because
1: usually you've got – I mean, I, I, live in, I live in Brooklyn. Uh, like
0: PS321 is severely oversubscribed, right? Like people, severely. People, and the, people yeah. move to be – close to it. they that's right. They give it money. They give it resources. That's and right. then they go insane when people, yeah. when they re- redistrict and say that they're going to send their kids somewhere else. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that's why, I mean, you can call it, they're both public schools, but the experience at those two schools are dramatically mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, yeah. how many schools today have you guys taken in? So we're at 10. Um, right. We've gone from about one under our model to 10 over the last um, few years. Right. And we want to go to 30 over the next uh, five years. We think that 30 tripling of schools will set us up to be able to go to those other 472 and a lot of other geographies. So Change for Kids shows up one day at my school. What happens then? Yeah. Well, first thing, they've run through an extensive application process. So, last so they came year, had, in a year. they came in exactly. a year. Exactly. Okay. So, we have a lot of recommendations and referrals that are done through existing schools, through existing program partners that we have, through superintendents, and they will suggest that those schools apply when we have an open application process. That process opens up in January. They then go through, an, as I said, a robust process that involves our education committee that involves great educators there. We go out to the school. We interview the principal, speak with parents, with teachers, really try to get an understanding of the culture and the goals of that community in the school. So last year we had, you know, 20 schools apply, and we could take two. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an extremely intensive process.
1: And, and I have to imagine that the, the mindset of the principal is key here. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um,
2: what know, makes a good principal? I think that you have to be – I would ask you what makes a great manager, right? I think you need God, someone I, who's visionary. Ma- no, <laughs> I have no idea. Not, Rich and I are the wrong people to ask, <laughs> yeah. but okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fun thing is, I mean, with my job in, in, in banking, that was one of the most important ingredients, right? You had to have a good manager, a good executive there. Or the company wasn't going to be successful. And it's very interesting to me that we have all these education experts who are fantastic at what they do on our board. But I also thoroughly enjoy the interview process because you see good leaders do similar things. The answer to your question, they're visionary, right? They know where they want to be able to take their schools. They can clearly articulate the roadmap to get there, that these types of investments, these goals along the way will help them achieve it. We really like distributive leaders. Not all of them are there from day one, but it's something we're really trying to develop in them is an ability to empower their assistant principal and their teachers and set up committees within their schools. They really are trying to be a good delegator and distributive leader. And I think the last thing I'd mention on it is they're incredibly intentional with their time. Unlike a lot of for-profit firms, you really do have a limited amount of time here. Those kids are there from 8 till 3. And you have to make sure that you're maximizing every single hour of that. The one last thing I would add on it, just because I find it interesting, is I used to ask principals how they respond to charter schools. How do they compete? And I found the answer always very compelling because you had some who would say, we can't compete with those guys. They're going to get what they're going to get, et cetera, and sort of have a defeatist attitude. And I love the principals who said, we need this, this, and this, and we are going to be the best darn school that is on the, in this community for every single child out there. And they were ready to, you know, not go to battle because we're talking about educating kids, but really do whatever they needed to do to be the best school that they could be. They were competitive. that's competitive. you want to partner with. Yeah. They were competitive. Exactly. They,
1: ac- they wanted to do well. They
2: wanted to, and you yeah. wanted someone who's committed and driven to do that. What yeah, kind
0: exactly. of interaction do good principals have with the students? Is it none, lots? Is it very well by principal?
2: It's a great question. You know, I think the first thing that you'll notice is the interaction with teachers. Um, I'll get to students in a sec, but when we walk into a classroom with a principal, you can see how do teachers respond? Are they surprised? Are they used to this? Um, or are they totally so you're, you're comfortable? You're with eyeballing that. that. 100 percent. You're not. Yeah, it's absolutely. not just a matter of Q and A. You're actually looking at that dynamic. Absolutely, aren't you? We interesting. Are, yeah. And you're seeing what is that dynamic there? How are comfortable are they? Are they excited and enthusiastic about it? So that's a big one right off the bat. Number two, to your point, how the students react, right? If they are used to it, if they turn around or are excited to see the principal, it's usually not made up. You can't fake that with first grade kids. Um, but yeah. they turn around and they're used to that. And that's there's, telling. There, there's a respect there. Absolutely. Yeah. So you really see these patterns. I oh, mean, there's,
0: Yeah, absolutely, uh, we do. How long do you need before you know something's like a, someplace is a good,
2: well run,
0: well intentioned, elementary
2: school well i think that you have two levels of 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 that first the principal and then the rest of the school community so i feel like as with most people who you interview usually know within about 20 or 30 minutes you're obviously not answering every single question right some people can dupe you but for the most part within 20 minutes of talking to someone you can see whether they have their stuff together or not um, and they have their stuff together enough to apply right? exactly so that's that's a filter yes okay. Yes, but it's totally different to apply. You take some boilerplate grant material that you have and slap it onto a piece of paper. (laughs) And another thing to actually have some very, very smart education-focused people there painting you with some questions and and what is your goal. And you just can tell, right? Why why do you need music? Well, our kids need music. Okay. Well- Then another principle comes in and says we are specifically targeting music to be able to develop creativity, to be able to make connections to math, and that this particular grade needs that connection for X, Y, and Z reason. That intentional piece is huge. Got it. Out of the 20 that applied, uh, you said you gave it to two.
0: Yeah.
1: How many could you have given it to? How many did you feel good about out of the 20? I think four or five. I would like to have. Okay, so your process is still pretty – it's not like you – 14 out of the 20 no.
2: were a go. No, Very I mean, you need that. It, it's all the things I said and what I didn't even delve into is just, but it's obvious, is the commitment. Yeah, Because you need someone who's really going to be committed to this partnership because if we are going to go out, work with someone for a number of years, you know, I'm not in this to feel good about myself. I'm in this personally because I want to make a difference. I know that's what everyone on our staff and board feels as well. And so if you're not really committed to this thing, I'm not interested in going out and busting my butt so that you know, uh, the, if we're not going to make a difference. So. See, this is what I, what I like about this is that,
1: you know, as a former capitalist, you're <laughs> still you're, a capitalist, you know, th- it's, you're still, <laughs> he, st- he is still a capitalist, but you view it as a competitive marketplace that, you know, the resources are, are, are tight. Yep. And if you, you want to compete for them, go ahead and compete for them. And I think to have that mindset in a nonprofit that doesn't have unlimited funds, doesn't have unlimited resources, I think is so good. And I think it's also, it's less a crutch and more an enabler, in a sense. Like, it's not just charity that you're just tossing out there and hoping for the best, but saying, hey, look, you're going to work with us here. You could fail. Like, there's failure here. Mm -hmm. That is real. I think is really, really attractive.
0: But I feel that this is the model for modern philanthropy, too. Yes. Like, I feel that the old days of, like, well, let's just, let's see what works are over. Right, there's, I mean, there's real there's,
1: analysis, there's real thinking. That it's goes done into, in a spreadsheet. It doesn't yeah. matter, I mean, it's, yeah. it's,
0: I don't even think it's like a, pre or post capitalist thing i think it's just like that's the whole philanthropic world went towards a metrics driven approach
2: and it doesn't mean you can't do r&d right you still need to be able to to test some things out and i think we as a society have to be comfortable with that even being numbers driven but yeah you want results right i don't have any interest and i don't think anyone around this table does in just trying things to feel better about ourselves right yeah
0: There are models for that. I remember um, learning a lot about an organization called the Vera Institute in Criminal Justice. And they, they create pilot programs with the metrics like really clearly defined. And it's an incubator. They incubate like community policing. Maybe if people from the community walk with a cop that will lower the rate of certain incidents. And then Mm -hmm. they track that in the community. And then if that succeeds, they'll go get the money. They'll partner with the Department of Justice. They test. It's it's testing. And they've been around for like 30 years. So I think that it's taken a long time for the world of do-gooderdom to realize that yeah.
2: that accountability is actually really good. Yeah. Um, well, well, I wouldn't even, I, I mean, I think that's philanthropic. I think that's going to be forced on governments. I think that's going to be forced on all of society, right? I mean, it's it's more natural within the for-profit world, but, you know, we don't have an unlimited amount of money and we have massive problems outside of just education. So I think that we've got to be able to do that.
0: Do you find yourself reacting to, like, obviously there's a big change about to come down at the yeah. national level in terms of education. We're going to get a new educational se- education secretary. There are a lot of strong opinions. When you're in a yeah. world like the world you're in, are you aware of that? Are you thinking about that? Or is that just kind of like fairly distant? Yeah, I think we
2: always are. We know what the opportunities, threats, all those things are to our business, I think, like any group. And, you know, policy for us, I'll give you an example of it. We are heavily reliant, as we've talked about already, on a good, on being able to have principal autonomy. Um, and being able to help find a principal and then work with them directly. The old model within New York City was less amenable to that when you had a lot of decisions that principals were not responsible for, they weren't responsible for their own budget, that superintendents made a lot of those decisions, or school boards made those decisions in terms of what programs you could put in, what your budget can be spent on. Those are always policy risks for us because we really do trust so much in uh, the autonomy of the principal to be able to, to know what they need. Um, so that's a policy risk. I think that school choice, we already sort of have a level of school choice most people don't understand in New York City schools. There are mm-hmm. a good chunk of quote-unquote choice schools in New York City. Yeah. And then when you apply for middle school and high school, there's a level of choice as well. So there's a part of that that's already been implemented within the city. Mm-hmm
1: people want to get involved in terms of your events and and how to reach out and whatnot, what should people do?
2: Yeah, I think they're, first of all, the website's always best, uh, changeforkids.org. And what we have on that website are volunteering opportunities. Uh, We'll have a number of those in the spring. You can go out and volunteer at schools. You can uh, do everything from painting, uh, doing cleanup days to, uh, we have this fun creative writing feedback event where you provide feedback to kids' creative stories. We have You know, the ability to do different stations like sports stations and art stations on a Saturday with kids. There's lots of fun opportunities at schools. And it's
0: not just individuals. It's organizations, right? That's a huge group of what we do.
2: Okay. So companies come to you. It's a cool company outing,
1: actually, versus like let's just go play volleyball at the park. It's actually a lot of fun.
2: And it's also something so many companies are looking for, right? You, the, mm-hmm. employee, the millennials like employee engagement, right? So um, so <laughs> I think that... Uh, he didn't
1: mean that in a snarky way.
2: <laughs> he was being genuine. <laughs> um, but no, in all seriousness, they, you know, I think that a lot of our schools or a lot of the groups that we do work with, that's such a driver for them, the volunteer opportunities for employees. So that's number one. Number two, events like you mentioned. We have a black tie event in February that sells out in about an hour or two usually every year we sell out 800 tickets called the penguin party so that'll be february 24th we have a super chefs event in november so it's a little bit farther out but this great food tasting event we have golf events we're gonna have a a ride us can't call it spinning um, but a indoor riding or whatever it is that you have to call it um, spinning is why can't you call it spinning it's a trademark word what yeah
1: who's trademarked spinning Uh, some
2: group out in california it's a Power, Seriously? Powerful
1: yeah.
0: digression for our organization for our podcast. Let's we'll move on. <laughs> That's bullshit. I Seriously? Know. I don't know what to look don't Tra- look at me. What am I am I, I the know. trademark authority? Just <laughs> say it,
2: someone in California. Yeah. Indoor cycling.
1: I was gonna, he's like um, riding indoors. I mean, what does that
2: mean? <laughs> you don't want to um, get a call on a letter from right. a lawyer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair
2: enough. Um, Keep going, Colin. And the last one is just sorta of holiday drives, right? We're coming up on those. This is the end of the year and you know, it is something that we have found powerful is that this year's tax rates very likely will be higher than in future years. So you get a bigger deduction this year by mm-hmm. making a donation. Cool. Uh,
1: well, this is great. Great organization. Thank you. Um, we'll, you know, as both personally and as a company post light, I'm happy to be connected and I hope we're going to be more connected in the, in the future. Um, Thank you. And thanks for doing this. This is a different podcast, but uh, a worthwhile podcast for us.
0: No, this is a great organization. Yeah. I mean, it's just cool. straightforward, good for
2: kids.
1: Yeah.
0: Sort of thing. Oh, so, cool. You guys thank you for amazing. coming in. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Thanks
2: so much for your time.
0: Well, Rich, when I talk to you the next time, it will be after Christmas.
2: Is that true?
0: Yeah, when we get through the next few days, you're right. Mm-hmm,
1: it will be after Christmas,
0: and all the all the wrapping paper will be in a trash bag on the stoop. Yep, that was um, kind of a nice holiday topic to think about helping all those children. It, it was. It's a little less nice when you think about the like three or four hundred thousand others that need help.
1: Well, that statistic is staggering, right? That 78% statistic is, is kind of incredible.
0: We um, might need to give a, a couple extra bucks to Change for Kids. I think I think we should. All right, let's do that. I think
1: others that. should too. They should go to changeforkids.org and read up on that
0: organization. It's a really good place. I'm going to give them, um, should we drop, uh, I don't know, 500 bucks between us? Sure. Let's do it. Let's make track changes not just a marketing vehicle for Postlate, but a force for good in the world. Great. I'll chip in 250. You chip in 250, and then we're we're out of here. We're on our way. All right. Well, that's good. That's at least a, a little Christmas good
1: deed. Um, and and uh, I hope everyone has a great holiday.
0: Yeah. So lots of people at, at postlate. You and I are talking about Christmas here. You're a, a Lebanese Maronite Christian. I'm a non-believer. There's lots of people with lots of different faiths at Postlate, and it's just kind of good to point that out. Happy everything. Yeah. So uh, we should let people know this is Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight, a digital product studio in New York City. We love having you as a listener. Give us five stars on iTunes, please. Uh, We need it, honestly. We we just need it. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can send an email to contact at postlight.com. Contact at postlight.com. And, uh, you know, we still have a couple copies of our book, of extracts from the track changes podcast the book's called practice it's a nice little book people send us a few emails about it and we send them out in the mail so send us your address you can use contact at postlight.com and we'll send you a little book thanks thanks guys